and welcome back to Spotlight, the podcast that discusses issues pertinent to child health with guests who make you think about areas not usually explored. I'm Rachel Beko, Senior Editor of Archives of Disease in Childhood, and this is ADC Spotlight. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Bernadette O'Hare. She's a consultant paediatrician and a senior lecturer in global health, both at the School of Medicine, St Andrews University, Scotland, UK, and at the Kamuzu University of Health Sciences in Malawi. She is the chair of the Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health Climate Change Working Group International Workstream. In the May 2022 Archives of Disease and Childhood edition, you'll find the editorial The Climate Crisis is Also a Child's Rights Crisis by first author Haytham Ali of the Neonatal Division Sidra Medicine Doha Qatar and senior author Bernadette Bernie O'Hare. Welcome Bernie, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Rachel, and thank you so much for the invitation. Oh, it's a pleasure. So this is a huge, huge topic, climate crisis and child rights. So where do you think we should start? Yeah, I think it's probably useful first to discuss why the international group, the international stream of the climate change working group in the college, why we as a group decided to frame this as a child's rights crisis. And our our thinking around that was very much that climate crisis is going to be an emergency, but it's happening on the back of multiple overlapping crises. And by that, I mean millions of children don't have access to the fundamental rights that they need to enjoy a healthy life or even indeed to survive. So, for example, you know, we know millions don't have access to even basic water and basic sanitation, much less safely managed water and sanitation. We also know that millions and millions of children are out of school every day, both primary and even more so secondary. And that's despite the fact that we know female education actually contributes to mitigating the climate change. So it was because of the underlying deprivations that we chose to frame the climate crisis as a child's rights crisis. The other reason is, of course, that, um, you know, this is also mentioned, um, human rights, the impact of climate change and human rights is mentioned in the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development, as we all know them now as the SDGs, the 17 Sustainable Development Goals. And human rights is also mentioned in the Paris Agreement on climate change. So this is a very useful way to frame the impact that climate change will have on children. The fact that it'll exacerbate current deprivations and make many of them in many countries much, much worse. Mm. And we see already things going horribly, horribly wrong. And framing in this sense makes sense. I wondered about what what tools does this, this framing then get access to? So what is it that we can do better when framing it as a, mm. as a, as a human rights crisis or a child's rights crisis? What, what does that do? Yeah, I think the, framing it as a child's rights cri- crisis triggers obligations and responsibilities among those who are responsible for every child not having their um, access to their fundamental rights. And when we think of um, children's rights, we tend to think of the nation state. 
the government of the, the country in, in which the child lives is responsible for that child going to school, having their immunisations, having health care. But in a globalised world, it's not as straightforward as that anymore. And the responsibilities often sort of cross borders. And I think that's the the interesting thing, and which is clearly obvious about climate change, that one country's emissions affect children in another country. But it's also, in fact, in many other issues other than climate change, in economic issues, which, which we'll touch on, that what a country does or does not do impacts people in other countries. And with respect to climate change, because of the the hugely negative impact that the, the climate crisis has had on children, that has a massive impact of children and therefore of particular interest to um, child, child health care workers. So while a country has to use the maximum available resources to ensure every child within their borders progressively realise their rights and those resources need to be used as efficiently as possible, other countries have an influence on those resources. And, um, you know, so for example, here I'm thinking of things like debt, things like um, tax abuse, because if countries don't have the resources needed to meet the climate emergency, that's their responsibility, but it's also the responsibility of a wider range of duty bearers other than the nation state. So this gets very complex and it's going to be extraordinarily difficult to neatly subdivide the obligations towards individuals, but also to nations, uh, towards each other in that sense. So how does the human rights framing fit into that? Absolutely. And so, for example, we can use the human rights framing in a number of ways, right? You know, one of the, the sort of recently, and I think we've mentioned it in the archives editorial, is young people are taking, with regards to the climate crisis, have taken um, six young children in Portugal, for example, have taken 33 countries to the European Court of Human Rights. And their quest of the court is that they make it a legally binding decision that will mandate governments to take urgent action on climate change. So that's that's one advantage of using the human rights approach. Those children are saying, we have a right to to live in a clean and healthy environment. You're not meeting your commitments. We would like you to meet those commitments and we're taking you to court to ask for that. And the other interesting sort of landmark ruling recently as well in 2021 was the United Nations Committee on the Rights of the Child, the UNCRC, concluded that countries do bear responsibility for the harmful impact of their carbon emissions on the rights of children across borders. And I think that was that was a you know sort of pivotal moment and a landmark decision. And also they also said that the collective nature of the cause of climate change doesn't absolve a state from its individual responsibility. So I think those those are ways that the, the human rights tools can be used in the context of climate change and have been used and no doubt will continue to be used by children and young people and I believe should be supported by, by those of us in this sort of, uh, to support young people to take these actions because ultimately it's their future that is going to be affected. Absolutely. And I find it extraordinary that it's uh, it's children and young people taking nation states to court. That's showing extraordinary agency there. Absolutely. And, and yeah. that, again, it, the that effort is not necessarily 
limited to Portugal. So these are children in Portugal, but their uh, their allies and their help um, span several several countries. Totally, yeah. What what would you advise for for listeners in this context if they if they want to do their part? What is it that they can specifically do or read or or listen to, to for themselves to become agents? I mean, there's so much we can do, and we all have to bear this. Isn't the all of us have our our sort of our day job, and I mean, pediatricians and child health workers are all very busy, but I think probably. When we think of this in terms of what action we can take, we can think of it in, at a number of different levels. There's there's the global level, which most of us you know, won't influence. There's the national level. There's the institutions in which we work. There's the networks that we're part of, the communities that we live, and finally the individual. And I believe the emphasis has been a lot on the individual, which is undoubtedly important, sort of, and by that I mean what decisions we make with regards to how we travel to work, what food we eat, how we consume, etc. And I think those are important, but I think probably even more important is how we influence our governments, how we let our governments know this is important to us, we want action on this. This is impacting children's rights in all countries. Possibly the one of the easiest, or not the, the most effective ways of doing that is through our networks. And so, for example, by being part of the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health, climate change group is one way to sort of contribute and make our voice heard at higher levels than we would do as an individual. So I think that would be sort of my thinking would be to really try and influence our governments to influence global institutions. And I think through the college is probably a, a good way to do that. Mm. The other way as an individual is to keep up with what's happening. And again, you know, there's multiple websites on with relating to climate change and health. For example, um, the Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health websites has numerous links off to, to whatever you're interested in. You may be interested in, for example, what an individual can do. You may be interested in what we can do um, with respect of in our workplace, you whatever you're interested in, there will be something for everybody to educate themselves, number one, and to get involved as a next step. Mm-hmm. After that, once we start to think of specific actions as individuals, then, you know, you start to think about who we bank with. Are we banking with banks that support the fossil fuel industry? Are we consuming from companies or engaging with companies that support actions that are not aligned with our values how do we travel and then other issues around our personal decisions there's there's the tendency because it's such a big topic to go and say well that's too big for me I can't do anything but that's reducing our agency to something that is not quite right so we all have capacity to do something where we are with what what we have and whom we know and there is direct action and then there is also indirect action and and having these conversations I feel is extraordinarily important because even if you're in your department you can look around uh, and then go so so what are the things that might reduce or what are the things that might increase our collective emissions yeah and, and there's there's lots on the you know on the Royal College website to advise us 
within the workplace how we can reduce our emissions, what actions we can take to do that. And I think even by those actions, what it gives us is a sense, it, it gives us a sense of community. We're working with other people who are interested in the same thing, all trying to move in the same direction. And just to refer back to what you said about, you know, there's, there's an inclination to say, God, this is too big. There's nothing much I can do as an individual. But I think it's human nature to try and do something, even though we might think, I'm not, I'm not sure how effective this is, just to take some action I think it's good for us all as individuals just to feel we're, we're contributing in no matter how small a way. Could we circle back to thinking about how the, the way we've currently organised ourselves perpetuate the, the, the current situation? So, so who benefits from the status quo? How, how do our economic models and, and taxation play their role? What might we be able to do differently? This is, and I think you're touching on the paper that we published recently on tax abuse and debt and climate change. And this paper sort of tries to bring together to to look at climate change, but within the context of the broader global economic sort of framework. So the countries that are, are most impacted by climate change already are low and lower middle income countries. So those countries are going to be most impacted by climate change. And it'll be the children within those countries who are going to be most negatively impacted. So in order to prepare for climate change, countries need the resources to adapt for the changes that we are all expecting. But if countries are losing a significant chunk of their government revenue, of their resources, to paying back debt, then they have less to spend on climate adaptation before we even begin to think of what actions countries can do to mitigate, to reduce their emissions. This is just to adapt, to get ready for climate change. So I think we're seeing this crisis play out on the background of other crises. And we look at, for example, tax abuse, the rules and regulations that countries set um, can create the vulnerabilities that allow countries to lose revenue as a result of tax abuse. And mostly those are higher income countries. A lot of debt service is paid to higher income countries. Most of the emissions have been created historically and even currently by higher income countries. So there's this divide in the world and there's a need to sort of reset this reset it so that there's more equality between countries as well as of course within countries and when we think of sort of our economic model our economic model doesn't take account of the costs to the environment and it's been based purely on a monetary profit and i think without sort of starting to count the costs in terms of the environment and without trying to rebalance between countries and within countries in terms of equity, then I think it's going to be very difficult to reverse current trends. Well, we're not even at reversing current trends. <laughs> <laughs> and there is something about uh, a time-critical nature Absolutely. of yeah. these, uh, of these uh, trends and, uh, and trajectory. Would you have a, an example? So UNICEF, for instance, has tried to make a tool for it, uh, for the climate crisis to be more tangible. Yeah. 
and they've they've uh, developed the Children's Climate Risk Index. Could you talk a bit to w- what it is and how it might be used? Yeah, so UNICEF created the, the CCRI, the Children's Climate Risk Index, and the purpose of that is to sort of to take into account and try and sort of quantify what we've just been discussing, the fact that the climate change happens in a context where many millions of children already are deprived. So they have two sides to this index. One looks at their current vulnerability to climate shock. So that is, how are they, um, what services are they already accessing, um, what sort of public services are children already accessing in that country. And then they look at the other side of it, which is the vulnerability or is to their exposure to climate environmental shocks, such as cyclones and heat waves and flooding of, of rivers. So they look at both sides and they sort of come up with um, a combined sort of index or figure, which sort of says, right, these children living in this country are particularly high risk to climate change. Number one, because they're already vulnerable. Number two, because they're going to experience more climate change than other countries. And that's an extremely useful way to try and quantify those most who are going to suffer most because they're already most vulnerable in order to direct most help um, towards those groups and towards those countries. So again, identifying sort of where help is most needed as a, a guidance uh, to exactly. where to look. Yes, and it's, you know, everything's scarce. So whether there's scarce resources, whether it be at aid, whether it be climate fi- finance, to indicate which groups would could should be prioritised. Is there, is there anything from, from your point? We've had this, this wide-ranging conversation. Is there anything from more, your point that you say, I'd really like to make this point? One of the most important aspects for children living in countries that are most vulnerable, and often this is in sub-Saharan Africa, is having the resources to, number one, make sure all children have their rights, and ideally by 2030, and again, these are arbitrary numbers, but the Sustainable Development Goals, as we all know, aim that, you know, all of these goals would be met by 2030. There's a number of steps we need to take at a global level, and, you know, the first steps need to be with regards fair distribution of resources. And the reason I have sort of, in my own work, have focused on tax is because when countries are losing revenue, losing tax revenue, they then go into debt and that starts um, a sort of a vicious circle. There is a move towards a UN tax convention and that would be at the at the United Nations, which where all countries are represented. Current moves to, to sort of address this imbalance have been at the OECD, which only represents really wealthier countries. So I would say if if we could support a UN tax convention, that would be, you know, the sort of the, the first of baby steps towards sort of a rebalancing of a global economic system, which is multiple gaps, especially in, in tax and debt. And we'll not be able to address the challenges that we're facing 
and we will face with climate change, which are already facing with climate change, unless we begin to take steps to address the other inequalities, the other inequities that are in our system. And, for example, Africa and G77 and other groupings of countries from the global south have put forward motions and suggestions that we have a UN tax convention and that has been voted against by higher income countries. So I would say we could start by voting for these changes to try and help countries sort of have the resources to deal with the climate change. The other point I'd like to make is about climate finance. Quite often it's sort of oriented towards mitigation and mitigation is to reduce our emissions so that all countries will benefit. But I would say there should be a difference between groupings of countries that a lot of the finance going to lower income countries really should be all for adaptation to the changes that are already taking place. And I would also advocate that the the finance going to these countries should all be grants and not loans if it's for climate adaptation. And that these are the changes that we can make to try and sort of ensure that less people than currently predicted are going to suffer the devastating impacts of climate change. For that to occur, we would need to acknowledge and act as if we are actually... In a crisis. (laughs) Not not just necessarily in a crisis, but that we have that responsibility towards each other. Yeah, and I think that's the role that paediatricians can take. We can keep highlighting that we are responsible for children no matter where in the world they live and that we're responsible, as we've discussed, for the emissions across border, but we're also responsible for children living in other countries which don't have the resources to make sure they have and make sure they're sitting in a, in a classroom today rather than at home. So I think we have to continually remind our decision makers of that fact and remind them that we expect them to act with that in mind. Not that because they're in another country that they're nothing to do with us. On that note, thank you, Bernadette O'Hare. Thank you very much, Rachel. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for listening. We publish regular podcasts about some of the best content of archives of diseases in childhood. The papers discussed in ADC Spotlight will be available free of charge for a month after the podcast episode's release. If you don't want to miss us, please subscribe on your preferred platform to get the podcast directly on your device each month. We'd also like to hear from you, so please leave us a review on the Archives of Disease and Childhood podcast page on iTunes. Thank you, and until next month, 